Hey there, it's Jeff MacArthur. Here's what's in the podcast for Friday, September the 4th. We'll talk to a royal watcher about Harry and Meghan signing that big new Netflix deal. David McDonald joins us to discuss the job numbers for August. He's a senior economist. And the former Ontario Deputy Minister of Education, Charles Pascal, talks about the ongoing confusion over back to school. All of that coming up, so let's get to it. Harry and Meghan. Now, there's two names we haven't heard much of in a little while, but they are back in the news after signing a mega deal the other day with Netflix. Patricia Treble is a royal watcher and joins us now here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Patricia, good afternoon. How you been? I've been good, Jeff. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. Uh, what do we know about this new deal between Harry, Meghan, and Netflix? Is it similar to what the Obamas uh, signed up for with Netflix? It appears to be. I mean, there's precious few details out there. Um, so what it involves is they are going to produce films and series for Netflix, docu-series, documentary, kids programming. And what they said is they want to create content that informs but also, also gives hope. So I'm thinking these are going to be positive, family-friendly sort of documentaries and things like that. Um, apparently, there's already something in development. Um, how, how much is exactly like the Obama deal? I don't think we'll know till it actually starts rolling. Um, I, I got the, the impression they had been chopping around their concepts, I guess, to a number of streaming and media organizations, and it was uh, Netflix that, uh, that sealed the deal. Um, and because one of the one of the issues is, of course, the Obamas. I mean, they already have um, you know award winning documentaries um, through Netflix, but they also do a lot of behind the scenes sort of interviews about doing you know how they did the documentary, how they found the people who actually produced the documentary. I mean, the Obamas really are kind of figureheads. They're curators. They they come up with the ideas and the concepts, but you know, real you know top notch producers actually do the work. Um, and I don't know that, you know, will all that PR stuff that they're, you know, Netflix will want from the Sussexes, how that'll go down. Because, of course, they, mm. you know, they got out of royal life because they want privacy. Um, yeah, so that's so... really interesting to see how that's all going to play out. And I guess that kind of answers maybe my next question, which was, do we know if Megan is going to be back in front of the camera? So... I'm almost certain they will be back in front of the camera, but she will not be acting. She's made it clear that is that is in the past. So I can I can imagine them fronting it. I can imagine them um, probably narrating documentaries or series, um, that sort of thing. Um, but I'm not sure how far they'll take it because that you know of course there is there is an issue. I mean, literally the day after they made this announcement, she launched a lawsuit with a photo um, agency over a photo of her and her son taken that was taken in B.C. Um, so, you know, there's this conflict there. Um, but I think it'll all work out. Interestingly, of course, under the agreement that they did with the royal family to, you know, to separate, um, they have to run the, all these deals by the palace. Um, because, of course, they made it clear everything has to uphold the values of the queen. So everything has to get the palace sign-off. So this is it's going to be fascinating to see how they can do this because, of course, Netflix is one of their big shows is The Crown. Right. <laughs> I, I, I hope they position the two of them side by side in my Netflix menu. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't you thinking? I mean, that was that was kind of the first thing I say. It was like, oh my goodness, are they going to have Harry like announce the crown? No, because yeah. of course the crown's coming back 
the season four with Di- the introduction of Diana, Harry's mom. Right. Going to be, uh, you know, this fall. So, but it's a fascinating thing. I mean, this is something I think they've always wanted. I mean, they've taken, they've, um, taken part in documentaries before. I mean, Harry certainly, especially for his wildlife, Invictus Games, all that sort of stuff. So it seemed like a very natural fit for them and also a way, you know, for them to make money. Um, now, people are saying... Do we know how much money, sorry, by the way? I've seen a bunch of dollar figures, but... Uh... Yeah. Um, so I started doing some digging. Nobody knows really for sure. I mean, up to $150 million is is kind of the number that's being banded around, but I think the up to might be doing some heavy lifting. Because there's, I mean, Shonda Rhimes, I mean, Grey's Anatomy is her, you know, what she created. She, I mean, she's a monster creator of, of really popular drama. You bet. She got $150 million. So she's got a proven track record. The Sussexes, they have the name. I mean, and that is absolutely what they've got. Um, so I don't know. Um, a lot of people are thinking it's, it's probably, you know, they have, you know, they'll start pitching to Netflix, and it depends on what Netflix picks up, and it depends on what people like, right? I mean, yeah, I'm going to go out on a limb, sorry, here, and just guess whatever the dollar value is, our Netflix subscriptions are all going up in price. <laughs> I think they're going up anyways. I yeah. mean, Netflix, I mean, but you know what? They're thirsty for content. They need content that will go around the world. And let's face it, the Sussexes, they are, they're a worldwide name, right? I mean, um, you know, it seems, it seems a natural fit for any of these streaming services. And that's why, you know, apparently there was, there was a lot of interest from everyone in them. And it kind of, it raises their profile. Let's face it. I mean, you know, with the pandemic, they have, they really haven't been able to do anything. They haven't been able to relaunch themselves you know, as these new private royals, um, um, because nobody can do anything, right? So, so yeah, I was going to ask you, this probably got delayed because of the pandemic. That's why they've been out of the spotlight for so long. And also, what do you think this deal with Netflix does for Harry and Meghan? I mean, is this exactly, I mean, they can tailor the content to uh, what they believe to be or what they want to be their brand moving forward? I think so. I mean, I think this is this is definitely the next part of it. I mean, because they've made it clear that you know they have to they have to make money. I mean, they just bought an estate in Montecito. I mean, it is very much an estate. I mean, it's a huge place, and they have a mortgage on it. Um, and you know, imagine you know their lifestyle. I mean, they're in a, an incredibly you know rich part of Southern uh, California, so they will need money. Um, but it is also part of the brand. I mean, they had always said that they want to do you know, um, something that, you know, impactful, you know, they, you know, Harry is keeping up with the Invictus games, um, that hopefully is going to be going next year in the Netherlands. So this, this does make perfect sense for them. Um, and as for the delay, I mean, it's hard to tell what was delayed and what is just being announced now, simply because the pandemic has just thrown everything out the window for so many people. I mean, even the Royals, I mean, normally the Royals by now have, you know, at least 2,000 engagements under under the belt for the year. They haven't even cracked 1,000 yet. I mean, so everyone's kind of, you know, having to rejig themselves into the new era. Um, but certainly it's hurt Harry and Meghan's ability to make money. They, you know, they've signed up to be, to give talks on the lecture circuit. But of course, nobody's doing talks right now, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. all kind of you know, on hold. Yeah, let me ask you, Patricia, before sorry, we run out of time. Where are things right now? You mentioned a second ago that the royals had to sign off on this Netflix uh, deal. Where are things between the royal family and Harry and Meghan? It seems to be kind of in a holding pattern. I mean, certainly after um, Prince Charles got COVID, 
um, in the springtime. Things kind of thought a bit because there, there's, it's amazing what time will do, time and, and separation will do. Um, and so things seem to be sawing. I mean, sawing. I mean, he's Harry has talked about the fact that he wants to come back next year. There's some some big um, engagements that he wants to take part in because he still has some of his charities back in in Britain. But of course, this is the summertime. The Queen, you know, is at the is at Balmoral. I mean, usually her family rotate through to visit her. Um, and of course, Harry and Meghan, they, you know, they're not going this year because of COVID. Um, so I imagine it's a lot of distance stuff. And that might actually be a good thing, a lower profile, you know, put a little bit of distance and then see what happens, you know, next year. I mean, it's kind of after, right? It's everything is before COVID and after COVID. Um, and so as much as this has hurt their, you know, their plans, this might actually help their family life. Yeah. Can I just say we're all desperately waiting after COVID? Could that please get here? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and I fear it's not going to be, it's not going to be as fast as everyone thinks. Just kind of just pace yourselves, guys, a marathon. Absolutely. Patricia, thank you as always. Really appreciate the time and have a good long weekend. Have a good Labor Day. Job numbers are in for the month of August in the news. It's good. David McDonald, senior economist with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives, joins us now. David, good afternoon. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here as always. 250,000 jobs added last month. Uh, Do we know where they came from? Um, Well, I mean, we are seeing a fairly broad recovery. Um, You know, we're still down quite a ways from February. So, I mean, it's good news compared to June, uh, but really not good news compared to February. Uh, we're still down just uh, just a little bit under 2 million jobs uh, from what we had in February, which is to say about 1 in 10 Canadians who is working in February is not working today or not at their uh, previous uh, hours. Situation's a little bit worse for uh, younger folks uh, under the age of 25. For them, it's about 1 in 5. Um, you know, have lost their jobs or the majority of their hours since February. Um, again, I mean, we have seen some recovery there, but for a lot of people in that category, you know, if you're going to school, you're trying to make some money over the summer on a part-time job, I mean, it's, it will have been a real lost summer for, for people in that category. All right, correct me if I'm wrong, though. I think we're now four straight months of job increases. So are we out of the woods, at least economically, when it comes to the pandemic, do you think? Well, we're we're still quite a ways behind where we were in February, and so we, you know we things were really bad in in uh, in May, um, and so we're we're getting better from that real low point in May. I mean, you think in May, half of everybody who was working under sixteen dollars an hour lost their job or their hours. I mean, half. You know that that was very bad. Now it's only now it's only twenty percent. So that's certainly better than it was in February. Uh, you know, it's, sorry, certainly better than it was at the worst of of uh, May and June. But it's not back to to where it was previously. I mean, one of the sectors that's really continued to lag behind in terms of recovery um, is the food and accommodation sector, and that's not going to be a big surprise to people with uh, the restrictions in terms of reopening of uh, of restaurants and how many people they can seat, as well as. Uh, people just not traveling because it's very difficult to travel now. Uh, so the accommodation side is very much suffering. And so that's one of the uh, sectors that really just hasn't seen a lot of recovery. Mm-hmm. I mean, David, I let me probably... stop you there. Sorry, just for a quick sec. I want to really key in on that sector because are they in danger? I mean, they've seen some gains, but a lot of that with the restaurant sector obviously has been with uh, patios reopening during the summer. And as we move into the cooler months of the fall in the winter, could we see some of those jobs kind of fall off as maybe people are still hesitant to do in-house dining? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the real danger. This really might be a high point um, in terms of jobs as we go into September, October. 
it's going to become harder for, for businesses in that industry, food and accommodation. But it may well be that there's a lot of businesses uh, that maybe receive some government support programs that are winding down, uh, maybe just stuck it out to see if they could make a go of it. Uh, but, it, you know, it's more difficult. We just haven't seen the same kind of bankruptcies, particularly business uh, or even or even uh, private bankruptcies that we've seen in previous recessions. A lot of government programs have helped with that, but they're going to wind down a bit in the fall. Uh, and so I think that it, it, I think that it'd be really telling, um, you know, what our steady state is, what our new economy looks like under COVID-19. We're really not going to know that until maybe October, um, where we start to see, you know, these these changes in, in food and accommodation bite. We start to see some of the bankruptcies really start to kick in. Uh, you know, fundamentally, we're going to have a different economy uh, than we had in February. We're going to see, you know, it's not going to be as bad as it was in June. Um, but it's not going to be the same way it, it was in February uh, for for a while now, and so that'll be that'll be you know once we get into the fall, that'll really I think tell us where our new steady state is, um, you know, and how many people fewer our, our economy can employ. Joined by David McDonald with the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives. Also wanted to ask you, David, a dismal day Thursday for the U.S. stock market: forty-four billion dollars in net worth wiped out. What happened? <laughs> Well, I mean, it's pretty surprising to see, uh, you know, some of the major indices hitting record all-time highs at, uh, you know, a once-in-a-century pandemic um, that has sideswiped uh, the U.S. economy, the Canadian economy, most most economies internationally. I mean, you know, we're seeing coordinated recession like we haven't seen since 2007, and yet uh, stock markets, uh, you know, particularly U.S. stock markets, at, are, are at all-time highs in, in, in some of the indexes. Um, and so it, it it may be that the that the euphoria around reopening um, is, is starting to kick in. Uh, you know, the, the spread of COVID-19 is rampant in the U.S. with no national, no coherent national policy. Uh, you know, public health situation has been much better in Canada than it has been in the U.S. Uh, and it's it, it may be that as we start to move into fall, um, that that uh, some of those impacts are starting to to dawn on on uh, you know people trading the stock market. Yeah, just how devastating is that? That forty four billion dollars. Uh, I was reading that uh, a lot of it uh, hit kind of more the world's richest people, uh, billionaires, who obviously are not going to feel that as much as the average person. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's certainly there's certainly a decline in prices, but we're still we're still way above where we were. Uh, in the you know in the initial falls that we saw you know the real lows that we saw in March, um, and in some cases we're you know at or near where we were in terms of all time highs for for 2020. So yes, there was a reduction in prices, but I mean we're we're still well ahead of you know the worst of what we saw in 2020. Don't focus on the micro, right? Just one day, you're in it for the long haul, right? Look at the trends. That's right, <laughs> David. Thanks as always for the time, and have a good Labor Day weekend. Bye bye. David McDonald, Senior Economist with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Okay, still pumped, still pumped from that Raptors win last night. The buzzer beater yet again. Half a second left on the clock. By the way, I found it. Here it is. I'm going to play right off my phone, right here into the uh, into the microphone. Check this out. Our man, uh, Matt Devlin, Matty D. Nobody like him. Lowry, Van Vliet, Gasol, Siakam, and Ananobi. Point five to go in game three. OG with a low. All right, I get goosebumps just listening to that again. It's been nearly 24 hours. Love it. Yep. Oh, gee. Oh, hang. my. He did hang there. He was like, oh. 
<laughs> but the other part of that play we have not discussed. I feel like we could do two hours just on this one bucket. Yes. But Kyle Lowry in that pass that goes right across the court to Ananobi. That's a dangerous pass in basketball. Like it, it's so easy to get picked off. And so the fact that he made that was that's gutsy. Yeah. That is a oh, gutsy sure. play, right? And not only that, but uh, Boston sent out that guy who's what, like nine feet tall. Who yeah. never plays it. The only <laughs> thing he does is stand there and try to block your pass. Yeah, he's seven five. No match for number seven, Kyle Lowry. By the way, can we just retire Kyle's number now? No, we have to wait. I think we it think deserves to, to be retired now. <laughs> Has but, that ever happened, Jeff, in professional sports? Well, this is what I'm saying. <laughs> Let's give this man an honor that we've never seen before. We raise his number to the Raptors. He can still wear it, of course, but once he's done, then we're done. With number seven for the Toronto Raptors. Without a doubt, greatest Raptor of all time. Uh, I don't know. Kyle Lowry. Really? (laughs) Really? You really want to debate this? You see that game he played last night? 46 minutes. Put the team on his shoulders. Remember the last really good shot that went in like that too? Remember that player? No. Kawhi? (laughs) Yes. Great player. Great player. Not the greatest Raptor of all time. Okay. Okay. No, it's Lowry. Hands down, Kyle Lowry. So, Oh, also, I wanted to mention uh, here that uh, there's some uh, movie news. Uh, do you recognize uh, this uh, movie theme? What is this? Oh, it's coming up. Okay. Oh, yeah. There you go, Mary. Yeah, I think... Uh, I think How our uh, not know that. Yeah, no, I, I think our man Rob found the extended remix or Dude, something. I, I started it from the start. You yeah, know, come on. That, of course, the theme to The Godfather. And there is news today that uh, Francis Ford Coppola apparently is going to re-release The Godfather Three. It's going to be in theaters sometime around Christmas, and he's actually going to change the beginning and change the end. What? <laughs> <laughs> Mary's not happy. Yeah. I'm with you I, on this, I just, Mary. I just think, you know, why? What first? Why next? And is it about just, you know, hey, we got some good stuff here. Let's just, you know, re-edit it, put it back out, make a bunch of, make a bag of cash. Let me oh. answer the why. Because mostly everybody has seen Godfather 3. And if they want to get you back into the theater, I mean, certainly there's an appeal to see it on the big screen once again. But... Do you get more people to go see it if the beginning and the end has been changed? I think it's marketing. Absolutely. I mean, you gotta, you you gotta know. You gotta see what was the alternative. I've right? never seen it, so now I have to see it twice. I guess, yeah. <laughs> but you know, here's the thing to me: it's like he's changing the beginning and the end, but the middle is staying the same. It's kind of like a sandwich, you know. Like if I love like a tuna fish sandwich, the tuna in the middle is staying the same. Normally, I have I have rye bread, now but instead wheat. of rye, yeah, we're gonna go with whole wheat on either end. Change the bread and get yeah. the dough. Change the bread and get the dough. Come that on. is yes. exactly what is going on there. Okay, we're just days away, of course, from a back to school in the province, and a chaos seemingly is just reigning supreme. In fact, the chair of the Toronto Area School Board is calling the provincial government's plan highly confusing and difficult. Charles Pascal is the former Ontario Deputy Minister of Education and joins us now here on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto. Charles, good afternoon. How are you, Jeff? 
I'm doing okay, thanks. Uh, is it fair, do you think, to call the government's plan confusing, or do you think the government is just adapting to changing circumstances and demands? I think the quote you attributed to the uh, chair of the TDSB uh, is a gross understatement. Uh, uh, basically, uh, the provincial government has uh, basically uh, uh, put forth a Russian roulette approach. They haven't, uh, you know, they, they have taxpayers' uh, ads. We are paying for ads. Uh, to be told myth truths about who they've collaborated with and who they've listened to. Uh, they haven't listened to the best medical advice. They haven't collaborated with the grassroots uh, school board and leadership. They haven't collaborated and listened to education experts. Uh, and they've squandered uh, not only the uh, the beauty of, of uh, grassroots collaboration uh, to work things out, they've squandered uh, three or four months of planning time. So this is a top-down uh, approach that has basically uh, produced a, um, a a reign of error and terror. Uh, I am getting a, a just as I was listening to, uh, you know, you got me pumped up with OG oh my. And by the way, <laughs> that was a pat play. If you look, if you look at it again for the thirtieth time, uh, you will <laughs> see uh, OG, uh, you know, going from one end to the other on the baseline, uh, and that was a pat play. So that's the only thing that's brought a smile to my face. Okay, so that's actually, Charles, in your estimation, that is an example of a well-thought-out plan and play, as opposed to maybe what the Ontario government's doing. It was absolutely, uh, you know, why a seven-foot-five guy has got his his, uh, arms spread like a wingspan of a 747 so that Kyle can get the pass to to the corner. But, uh, no, this has been been a disaster that's caused a huge amount of stress. Look, uh, when the Premier and the Minister say that it is in the best interest of everybody to have everybody in the classroom. Hey, I agree with that. But the, the what's required to get there uh, requires an investment of, of uh, two meters of space, uh, a re- remarkable uh, a lowering of class size. Everybody is saying that. They've ignored it. They haven't put money in it. And as a result of their objective to get uh, everybody feeling good about going back to school, 30 to 50 percent of parents are keeping their kids away from that. Isn't that ironic? They are not spending any money. Uh, they, they talk about how much money they've spent, uh, and it's, uh, it's on the cheap. It is a absolute disaster causing stress to parents, students, and, and teachers. Okay, well, the, the old saying, Charles, of course, is it takes two people to have an argument. And, yes, the uh, chair of the uh, Toronto District School Board is calling the plan difficult the premier has used that same word to describe the teachers' unions. Do they need to be maybe a little more accommodating and come halfway, meet the government halfway? Look, Jeff, I've been following Ontario uh, uh, education since uh, the best minister we've ever had and the best education premier we've had, and that's William Grenville Davis, who still lives uh, comfortably on Main Street in Brampton. And I have never seen a government that uses the old saw of blaming the unions. Well, let's let's remember that everything the unions are saying about health and safety, small classes, uh, social distancing of two meters, everything the unions are saying is matched by experts, uh, medical uh, experts, uh, and everybody who's paying attention to evidence. I'm a nonpartisan, broken-down former bureaucrat. I'm not a partisan. I'm following the evidence. So it's nice to bash the unions. It's an old game. The problem is, in this case, the unions are basically uh, saying the same things that uh, 
anybody paying attention to the evidence you're saying. So it's it's an old game to blame, and this government is setting up, uh, not only trying to set up as a uh, and the main game of teachers unions, they're also setting up local boards uh, for not getting it right. These these guys are uh, ready, ready, ready and waiting to uh, to ensure that when stuff happens, and it will happen, uh, they are going to blame local public health authorities. They're going to blame the local school boards for not getting it right. Uh, and that's what's going on right now. And it's uh, it's, it's just a gross uh, error in judgment to try to save money uh, at the expense of the health and safety of our parents, students, and teachers. All right. Try to uh, help us all understand this. You say that you're listening to and following the science, and so are the teachers' uh, unions. I mean, we are hearing that from the government and the premier, that uh, the health table, quote-unquote, the, the health table has got the final word and is making the decisions. Are they looking at a different set of science and facts? I mean, science can only really say one thing at the end of the day, no? They're listening. They're listening. Look, uh, uh, the Medical Office of Health of the province of Ontario is, has consistently been lagging behind the curve he's trying to flatten. He is part of the problem. And they are listening, they are listening to a very narrow band of folks who, uh, who simply don't uh, understand the latest evidence. Uh, in my opinion, when you hear the head of the... Uh, uh, registered Nurses of uh, Association of Ontario, Doris Greenspan, there's somebody who understands the latest evidence. Uh, she understands what I understand and a whole bunch of other epidemiologists understand, which is the youngest of our young are, have always been considered, you know, they're not vulnerable whatsoever. Increasing evidence around the world indicates uh, that they can be asymptomatic carriers. Uh, youth uh, in increasing numbers uh, are showing up with, with the virus. And so when they talk about their, their medical roundtable, they're chatting themselves up and they're not listening to the best uh, science available uh, and they're lagging behind. And, uh, and, and, you know, basically it's all about the blame game. It's all about the, the huffing and puffing of a premier uh, who simply doesn't get it and a disinformation machine uh, known uh, uh, as the Minister of Education. And just a reminder, you can listen to the show live one to three weekdays on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto.